This morning we are going to conclude our study in the book of Esther. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. How is it that we can live in faith in a world where God is unseen? The Jews in this time period in Esther, 5th century B.C., are not necessarily our model for believing faith. There may have been a few genuine believers among them, but we don't have any positive example from them. What we do, uh, what, what we do in our society um, is going to be dependent on our view of, of the world, of God, this God who is unseen. How do we do this when we're surrounded by unbelievers? And what happens when we end up in a church that is filled with spiritually complacent people? What happens when we fill, end up in a church or a home that is filled with people who care little about God or in a workplace? Because of our circumstances, do we doubt the existence of God? Do we question His goodness? Because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we are told that true faith is believing in the God in whom we cannot see, being confident that He is real despite not being able to see Him. That God is alive and that God is at work in our lives even though we do not see Him. He is like the wind. The wind we cannot see. We can only see the effects of the wind. And God in many ways is like that in that we only see the effects of His hand at work. We don't actually see Him. And yet as Christians, we can still be confident in the existence of God and in His loving sovereignty and in His providential hand of working throughout creation. And this is important to do because we're going to come into circumstances where it seems as if God does not exist. And that's where our faith in God must uh, must reign and must uh, come out. Esther's chapter 9 and 10, a longer passage here, uh, but I'm going to read all of it for, uh, for our benefit. Esther chapter 9, I'll begin in verse 1 and read to the end of the book. This is the Word of God. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples, even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. And thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. At the citadel in Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poretha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Vizatha 
the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall even be granted you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Then said Esther, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so. And an edict was issued in Susa and Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled in the 13th and 14th day of the same month and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month, Adar, a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Then Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews overtook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the adversary of the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor that is the lot to destroy them and destroy, uh, and to disturb them and to destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that this wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. The command of Esther established these customs for Purim. It was written in the book. 
Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. In this final section of the book, we see that God protects the Jews from their enemies. This is the overriding theme throughout the book, that it is God who is at work here, that it is God who is protecting the Jews, who is giving them favor. In verse 1 of chapter 9, we see when this happens. March 7th, 473 B.C. is the exact day. It's the 12th month and the 13th day on the Jewish calendar. It was about 11 months since Haman had put the law into place, that the law that said all Jews would be annihilated, they would be destroyed, killed, completely wiped off the face of the earth, not just Jews in their city of Susa, but throughout all of the empire, the Persian Empire. And it was about eight and a half months when Mordecai had put into law one that that, uh, that contradicted it, that uh, helped offset that previous law. And that was a law to protect the Jews. We're going to see what that looks like here today. In verse 1, um, Haman's goal was to have the upper hand on the Jews, but instead, notice the language there at the end of verse 1, on the days when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary. Or as the NIV reads, the tables were turned on them. Instead of the Persians and the enemies of the Jews having mastery over the Jews, the tables were turned so that the Jews now had mastery over their enemies. And so in verse 2, they prepare to fight. They have all these people who hate them. And we have to recognize that this is not just a small pocket of insurgents against them. It is a large number of people. Look at verse 16 to see how many. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill, notice how many people, 75,000 of those who hated them. So, except for in the city of Susa, all the other cities throughout the empire, 75,000 people were killed by the Jews. That is, people who hated the Jews, who wanted to see the Jews killed. And then there were another 800 in the city of Susa itself. So, over 75,000 people hated the Jews, this was not just a small group of people that wanted to see the Jews destroyed. It was a very large number of people. And even uh, we see God turning the, the officials to, to have favor over the Jews in verse 3. It says there that, that they recognized that the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Verse chapter 8, verse 17, many, of the, many people became Jews because the, the fear of what would happen to the enemies of the Jews had fallen on them. And so we have this turning of the tables. Before it was Haman who was second in command to King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus. And Haman hated the Jews. And so if you hated the, if you were hating the Jews as well, then you would be in favor with the king and his second in command, Haman. But that's not the case anymore. The king's now in favor with, or, or Mordecai's now in favor with the king. And so if you hated the Jews, you're actually now opposed to the king. The tables now have turned. 
Verse 4 tells us that Mordecai's fame was great. And then in verses 5 through 11, we see success of the Jews on, on the battle day number one. Verses 5 through 11, the battle begins in verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with the swords, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And then the first report comes in in verse 6. The report comes in that 500 people had been killed in Susa. 500 enemies of the Jews had been killed in the main city there, including the ten sons of Haman. And they would be hanged in verses 13 and 14, leaving no one to carry on Haman's hatred for the Jews. See, hangings were not done in order to kill a person in those days, but in order to display that person, to speak loudly and clearly to everyone else around. This is what happens when you are an enemy of the Jews. So he puts up on a uh, on a, a set of gallows, first Haman in the previous chapter, but then, uh, or, or two chapters ago, and then now his ten sons. This is what happens to the enemies of the Jews. And this is fascinating because what did Haman want the, de- the death of Mordecai to say to everyone else? He wanted to say the same thing. He said, this is what happens to an enemy of Haman. And he wanted to have Mordecai hung on there, impaled on this pole. But instead, the tables are turned. Verse 10, it says that they do not lay the hands at the end of the verse. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. It's hard to know what's going on here for sure. It could be that they only took what was necessary to defend themselves and so they didn't need all of the, the money and resources that way. They only wanted to survive. They didn't care about gaining wealth and, and the prominence necessarily. Or it could be that they didn't take the plunder because this was a Jewish battle custom. You remember Abraham when he went up against the four kings when they had they had uh, kidnapped Lot in Genesis chapter 14. There was a gift that was offered to him because he he defeated those armies. And what did Abraham say? No, I don't want any of my prosperity to come from those people because I want I want to know and I want everyone else to know that my prosperity comes from God. So the Jewish Custom was to not take plunder. It could be for that reason that the Jews here did not take the plunder. But I lean towards the first possibility since I don't find any God-centered motives in these Jewish people. So they are successful on day one of the battle. But, it, but according to verses 12 and through 15, we have to have another day of battle because the battle's not over. Look at verse 12. The king says there, you can have whatever you want up to half my kingdom. What about these reports, he says? And then in verse 13, Esther says, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. In other words, we need another day, king, because we still have some enemies here in the city of Susa, the the royal city there. Apparently, everybody else, all the enemies of the Jews had been taken care of outside of the city. We'll read about that here in a little bit. But but inside the city, they needed another day. In fact, 300 more enemies would die in verse 15 at the hand of the Jews because the king agreed with her request and ordered uh, that this be put into law. The summary of the rest of the Jews' success is found in verses 16 through 19. 
Um, while that was all happening on the 13th and the 14th day of the month, um, in the outside the city of Susa, we have uh, their battle finishing, finishing on the first day, the 13th day of the month, when they killed 75,000 uh, enemies. And so they didn't need any more time. Look at verse 17. This was done on the 13th day of the month, Adar, and on the 14th day they rested. So they, you know, in the city, in the city of Susa, they had to fight both on the 13th day to kill 500 people and then the 14th day to kill 300 more. But outside the city, they only had to fight on the 13th day. And on the 14th day they rested. And this explains for Jewish readers why the festival of that's called Purim, which is the casting of lots, why it it it, it goes as it does. That is those who are in the main city of Jerusalem, they don't celebrate it on the 14th day of the month. Instead, they celebrate on the 15th because during that time they were they were still fighting. But all the other Jews, we could call them the scattered Jews, anyone outside of Jerusalem, when they celebrate this festival, they celebrate it on the 14th day of the month because they only needed one day to to destroy their enemies. And so that gives an explanation for future Jewish readers who would come back to a text like this and say, why are we selling, celebrating this festival this way? Why do people in the city celebrate it one day after us? And this gives the answer for why that happened, why it was put into place. In verses 20 through 32, we have a commemoration of the festival, uh, a commemoration with the festival of God's protection of the Jews. That God, uh, several times throughout this passage, verse 22 most notably, turned them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. He turned the tables for them so that no longer would they be sorrowful because they were about to be destroyed, but, but joyful. Verse 26 gives us the reason for the name of the festival. Therefore, they called the, these days Purim after the name Pur, which means lot. Okay, remember um, the point that that wicked Haman was was not that it wasn't that wicked Haman was the one determining the outcome of the Jews, was he? And ultimately, it was God because what did he do in order to put this law into place? First, he cast the lots, and when he cast the lots, that determined which day the Jews would be destroyed. And ultimately, that was a day that God had chosen because God was doing some things before that would take place in order to turn the heart of the king, in order to put Haman in a place where he is recognized as evil and where he is judged, and then also allow for time so that the law could be put into place so that the Jews could be protected. And so Purim is just a casting of the lots. It's a, it's a plural way of saying uh, singularly, casting a lot. That's what pure is. And so, the point here is not that Haman determines their fate, but it is God who is in control of the Jews. He's the one who is in control of the casting of lots. That Proverbs says that, that even God controls that. That is the rolling of the dice, you know, the, the shuffling of the cards, every seeming uh, random circumstance I say seemingly random circumstance in our society is actually controlled by God. And that's, uh, that's who the real hero, uh, hero of this story is. 
many of the Jews later would, would likely recognize this and, um, and give added meaning to this, this festival. Notice the universality of this holiday in verse 28. These days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. Okay? It was not something that was just a, a local celebration. This was to be done by all Jews. And uh, Queen Esther confirms the commemoration of these days, confirms the festival in verses 29-32. Uh, she, she puts into law that these should be remembered, sent a letter out to the Jews, words of peace and truth. As one commentator writes, Deborah reads, she says, there will always be another chapter in the history of Israel. But this one was especially important and was to be remembered by Jews because of God's providential hand of power. There are many festivals that the Jews celebrate. Uh, Many of them are connected with God's uh, working on behalf of them. And this one is special to them, should be special to them, because of what God did to them, because of His providential hand of leading in the circumstances there. In chapter 10, we have a summary conclusion of the entire book. King Ahasuerus, verse 1, laid a tribute or a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Typical for uh, uh, this kind of a ruler. What does he do when there's a time of peace? He raises the taxes. Good time to raise taxes. He sets up what's, what, what they would recognize as a peaceful time for taxation. All the people in the land were prospering from the destruction of their enemies. And all the people, the non-Jews, were apparently accumulating the plunder of these enemies. And as a result, the land as a whole has increased in prosperity. They have removed some of the dross, so to speak. And so this is a good time. It's a time of peace. There's no more conflict within the Persian Empire, and so this is a good time to raise taxes. And apparently there's no backlash to that, so it probably shows how prosperous the people in the land really were at this time. The book ends in verse 3 in a very different way than it began, doesn't it? It began with the exaltation of the Persians, and specifically King Xerxes and his power, and how he could just make laws and they would stay in effect and not be changed by anyone. It was unmatched power. But in the end, it ends verse 3 of chapter 10. For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of the whole nation. It ends with the exaltation of the Jewish race and the rise of Mordecai to power. We've learned many things from this book. But I want to point out a few that we can uh, draw out from the principles in this book and that we can apply to our lives. Number one, God can turn the tables on the enemies of His people. God can turn the tables on the enemies of His people. It is interesting to note how much of a failure the law of Haman was. What was the goal of the law? It was to destroy all the Jews. And the result would be, in Haman's mind, that it would make him great among the people. He wanted to be recognized as great as he he saw himself in his own mind. 
So if I can eliminate those who oppose me, specifically this Mordecai, this vile Mordecai who will not bow down to me, if I can eliminate him and make him a spectacle by destroying him and all of his people, then I will have no one left in the land who doesn't think I'm great. That was his goal. Destroy the Jews and I will be exalted. And yet he failed miserably, didn't he? No one paid homage to Haman. The only recognition they had of him was him, his body being impaled on a pole 75 feet in the air. So, in short, the goal for him was for all the Jews to, to die and for Haman's name to be greater. But how did it actually turn out? Instead, he was defamed. He was killed. He was, along with his family, impaled on these poles and and how many of the Jews, his goal was to destroy the Jews, how many of the Jews died in this book? We have no record of any Jews dying. Now, there could have been some or perhaps many who died in battle, but none are recorded to have died in this battle. And so he fails. Now, we are not Israel, but we are like Israel because if you are a Christian, you have been chosen by God and you have been set apart for His purposes. Is there any reason for you to fear your enemies? Is there any reason to fear those who oppose you? Is there any threat on your life, really, that can be successful apart from the almighty hand of God? Cannot God turn the table, the tables on your enemies? As He did with the Jews. Absolutely He can. Because God is in control of everything. We have nothing to fear. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be our enemies if God is for us? There's nothing to fear. Number two, God accomplishes His purposes through the imperfect people and imperfect circumstances that happen every day. God accomplishes His purposes through the imperfect people and circumstances that happen every day. Our thought is there are some significant situations that are going on in my life with imperfect people and imperfect circumstances which I can't control and so God must not be there. I mean, we look at a story like this and you know, because of hindsight, we say this makes a lot of sense. I see why God allowed Haman to despise Mordecai because it would actually bring God more glory. It would show how great He is to protect His people. I see now why the lot was cast on the specific day. I see why God allowed it to happen that way. I see why, chapter 6, the king couldn't sleep so that he would come across the chronicles of Mordecai's protection of him. And I see that. I, I recognize that God's hand is in this. But then we look at our own circumstances. The imperfect people around us, the imperfect people above us, the imperfect circumstances of which we face every single day, and we say, God can't be here. He must be on vacation. You see, we can see it from behind in many cases, like in a story like Esther. But when we look at our own situation, we don't see where God is. But what we should see is that even through imperfect people and even through imperfect circumstances, 
God is meticulously at work in that situation to bring about what He wants. God is meticulously at work in every situation to bring about what He wants. Notice how God did not save these people. Okay? He didn't save the people of Israel by turning the hearts of their enemies, causing them to become believers. That's not how He did it. He didn't bring the king to saving faith. He didn't change Haman's heart. He accomplished, he accomplished what He wanted through imperfect people. Think of Joseph. Joseph moves from a place of obscurity, a place of uh, where he is despised among his own family, and then among uh, uh, when, when he was in jail and so on because of a false accusation against him. You know what was God accomplishing through those imperfect people around him and those imperfect circumstances? Was not God accomplishing one of the greatest things that He has accomplished in the Old Testament? And that is the protection of the Jews, yea, the whole world, by putting Joseph in a place of command, second in command, where he could uh, have oversight over this famine that would come. God often works through imperfect people and imperfect circumstances to accomplish what He wants. And every time that there are imperfect people and circumstances, God will accomplish what He wants. We can see this from behind, but it's hard to see when we're walking through. And so our responsibility is to trust God, to put our faith in the unseen God. We can't see where you're at, God, in this. I don't see your hand moving in this, but I'm going to trust you. Number three. God doesn't always work the same way. God doesn't always work the same way. To save His people from Egypt, God did something spectacular. He miraculously displayed His power through the ten plagues and then through the parting of the Red Sea and then through providing manna and supernatural ways to provide water and so on. God worked in miraculous ways, spectacular ways, didn't He? But here, any miracles? God here worked through ordinary ways, through, uh, through, through providential means. It was the casting of the lots. It was the king not being able to sleep that turned the events in favor of the Jews. How is it, do you suppose, that God works today? I think God is working providentially Today. Sure, He can interrupt the space-time continuum as He does in miracles. He could do that at any time if He wanted to, and perhaps He does. But primarily, God is working providentially through ordinary means and through the extraordinary means of the Holy Spirit. That is, that God is working behind the scenes. Do you recognize that? Even when we are not aware of it, God is at work. John Piper puts it this way. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be only aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of only three. 
Karen Jobes puts it this way in her commentary, at the moment when God is working, we can't be fully certain what He's doing. Okay, if there were any Jewish believers at this time, they couldn't be certain of what God is doing. Why have this law against us to kill us all? What is God doing in this? We can't fully be certain when God is working while we're actually going through it. I mean, who could have been certain that Joseph would be the catalyst for saving thousands of lives in Egypt while he's sitting in prison, forgotten about? His family doesn't even know if he's still alive. Who could have been certain that God was going to save a jailer and his family as Paul and Silas are singing in prison, stopped from progressing the gospel? Who could have been certain of that while it's happening? They couldn't. In hindsight, yeah, we see that, that God was doing that. We, we see something great in that. But in the midst of the circumstances, we can't be sure what God is doing. And so our responsibility, not knowing the outcome, is to trust in God is to depend upon Him. And that leads us to number four. We need to trust His Word. The book of Esther does not include one reference to the name of God. From beginning to end, there's no mention of God. And I think the author did that to show that Israel, in order to be mature in faith, they had to see God where He wasn't explicitly seen. That is, through His miraculous interventions. That they would need to trust in God apart from a miraculous display of power like the Red Sea. They'd have to trust in Him through simply obeying, listening to His Word and responding to it, trusting what He has said. So that whether God is abundantly present, He is very clearly in our midst, we know that He's working, or He is apparently absent, our lives have to be marked by acknowledgement of His greatness, trust in His providential working, His hand of blessing. And the only way that we can do that is by knowing and trusting His Word. He realizes that you have the greatest resource of any believer in history and that you have, you have the completed Word of God. Even the disciples didn't have that. Yes, they had Jesus Christ in human flesh, and yes, He has the best revelation of God, but they still didn't know a lot of things. There were a lot of things that were left unknown to them. In fact, when Jesus died, they were all in confusion. What's going on here? Luke tells us that it wasn't until after the resurrection that they understood some of the things that Jesus had been saying. And even the disciples, as they got older and eventually died, lived much of their lives without a completed revelation of God. We have that. We have everything that God wants us to know about the Scriptures. And yet, in times, where, in times of trouble, in times of circumstances where we see all the imperfection around us, it's hard for us to see God. And I think the reason for that is because we don't trust God. His Word enough. We don't know His Word enough. Psalm 9.10 says, Those who know Your name will trust You. For You, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek You. If you, trust, if you want to trust in God, you have to know God. The highest thing that you can do in life as a Christian is to know God. 
And I just want to leave, with you, leave you with one specific application that I've mentioned before, and that is one of the great ways that you can get to know God this year is by reading through the Scriptures. We have a plan out on the back table that, that we, we have uh, suggested that you put into place this year to read through the entire New Testament, the book of Psalms and half of the Old Testament. It's two chapters a day. And it uh, doesn't take very long, but it gives, and it's not too big of a section where it's hard to see what the, what's going on. You can take time and, and reflect on what's going on in such short uh, amount of reading. And yet this will be a, a way for you to get to know God better. better. Remember, when you do this, the goal is not to check off your list so that at the end of the year you can say, I did it. The goal is to know God more so that even if you miss however many days throughout the year, you actually know God more because you're actually reflecting on what you read. There are lots of ways that we can get to know God more. You know, spend time. Every time the service, the church services are available, we preach the Word of God. It's a great way to get to know God. Uh, we have uh, other ways as well, um, like the Scripture memory packets that are out there as well. I encourage you to, to think about that specifically because in times of trouble, it will be difficult for you to get by as a Christian. It will dif- be difficult for you to make sense of things without knowing God. In order to trust in God and what He's doing, even when you don't know what's going on, you have to know Him. And so I urge you to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize this process of change does not happen overnight. We don't go from uh, impurity before we were saved to complete and total purity in the sense that all of our sins are are removed from us. No more temptation. We know that... it. it with regard to our standing, yes, we are justified. We are counted as righteous. But, but the process of change takes a lifetime. And so we pray that You'd help us to engage in that process. To use the means of grace, the means of Bible reading and prayer and memorization and sitting under the teaching of Your Word. We can't trust You unless we know You. We need to trust You because there will be dark times in our lives. There will be times of prosperity where we're tempted to leave You. And in those times, we still need to trust You, recognize who our commander is. Lord, I I need this. Our church needs this. Help us, we pray. Give us strength. Help us to recognize that this change is much like Paul calls it a walk. It's slow and methodical. It uh, often has setbacks, but the general progress will be growth, spiritual growth, godliness, changing, being changed into the image of Christ. And we know that that's a great power that Your Spirit promises to do in those whom He has saved. So we pray that You'd help us to be complicit with Him and not to quench the Holy Spirit, but to be complicit with Him as He leads us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.